Wow, what an account that we read in Genesis 29. I don't know if there is a chapter in Genesis that has more landmines for a a preaching pastor. So we're going to try to navigate through this very carefully this morning. Sanctification and the difficult means God uses to grow us up is what we're going to talk about today. God is going to sanctify Jacob. And the way that God is going to sanctify Jacob is not the way that Jacob would probably like to be sanctified. So what does it mean to grow up as a Christian? What does it mean to be sanctified? How does God work sanctification in us? We're going to get a lot of insight into all of that in this chapter. So let's pray. We'll get started. Our great Father in heaven, thank you for um, orchestrating this morning where we have you and your people and your word. God, we pray that you would do great things now through the preaching of this word. Help me to speak about it well. Help me to preach it well. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would illuminate truths in the hearts of your people here today. As always, we know that there's probably friends here who do not know you and do not love you. There may be some here today who who don't believe that this is your word who don't believe that this is truth, who have have never heard it the way that we hope they will hear it in their minds today. Because God, we pray that you would reveal yourself to those whom you have not revealed yourself to yet. And we pray that they would hear uh, something great, that it would, when they hear your word, it would be like honey. It would be sweet and that it would, it would light up the path that they're on and they would, see your universe in ways they haven't seen it before, see themselves in ways they haven't seen themselves before, most importantly, that they would see you for who you are, that that all people in this room would know God now. Amen. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, please open your Bibles if you haven't yet. Genesis chapter 29. Here is Jacob. Jacob is looking for a wife, you might remember. And so he's headed to his mom's hometown. That's a good place to go, man, if you're looking for a wife. Um, he's, he's got a great mom. She's a godly woman. She's a good woman. So where'd she come from? That's the question. So he's going back to her hometown. If you remember in Genesis chapter 24, we read about Abraham's trusted servant, who was sent by Abraham to find a girl for his son Isaac. Where did he send his trusted servant? To this very same community. Very same place. Very same family. And so now here is Abraham's grandson Jacob. He needs a good and godly woman. Where is he going? He's going where his mom came from. Where Rebecca came from. Isaac has uh, sent him to the same place that Isaac's dads found his wife, a hundred years before. So a hundred years later, here's Jacob setting out on the same journey, 550 miles to the same community, the same family. That brings us to verse 1. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well the flocks were watered, The stone on the well's mouth was large. And when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep. 
and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. If you've read Genesis 24, a lot of this is going to sound familiar. Like his grandpa's servant a hundred years before, when Jacob pulls into town, he goes to the same place. He goes to a well. The only difference is that his grandpa's servant went to the maiden's well and he goes to the shepherd's well. So there'd be a maiden well where all the young gals would go and they'd gather water in the evening for the next day. There'd be another well that was reserved for uh, maybe watering sheep. And so this is the well that we're talking about here. And so he goes to the shepherd's well and we learn something important about the well here that's going to come into play in just a few verses. And that's that this well would have been covered and was covered by a large rock. They would cover the well with a large rock so that when the well was unattended, it was to protect it from any kind of contamination. Nothing goes in the well. Animal doesn't fall in the well. Nothing like that. So they have an enormous rock that would be placed over the mouth of the well. And then what would happen is that the sheep, the the shepherds would have a, a designated time of day where they knew that they were all going to meet at the well to feed their sheep. And they'd all need to be there because the, the rock is so heavy that it took several of them to lift it. So they'd have a designated time. When it's time to feed the sheep, let's go to the well. We'll all pitch in and we'll get the rock off and we can take care of our sheep. That's going to be important. It's going to come into play in just a bit. Verse 4. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? They said, We are from Haran. He said to them, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, we know him. He said to them, is it well with him? They said, it is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. So Jacob gets to the well. He meets some men. He asks about Laban, finding out if they know him, because that's who he's there to see. Laban is his mom's brother. That's the family he's looking for. Turns out they do know him. He asks if he's doing well. And in the middle of their conversation, Laban's daughter shows up. Rachel shows up. Rachel is a special woman. In verse 17, we're going to find out that she was beautiful in form and appearance. And when Jacob sees her, he is hooked. First sight. Doesn't need to know her name, doesn't doesn't care about her personality, doesn't matter. She is this beautiful. Okay? He is hooked. And so he 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 wants to find out more about this girl. Now men are known to act strange in front of beautiful women. You're laughing because some of you know this or you've done this. Men just do they do weird, unexplainable. Phenomena happens in front of beautiful women. So Jacob is no exception. We're going to see some, what I would say, is some odd behavior from Jacob when Rachel walks up to him. Verse 7, here's what happens first. He said, Behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. He's talking to the shepherds here. Water the sheep and go pasture them but they said we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled away from the mouth of the well when we water the sheep so the first thing jacob does is he tries to get the other shepherds to take a hike 
hey, I've got a great idea. Why don't you guys water your sheep and go and pasture them, right? He does not want competition. These are shepherds, by the way. These are, these are manly men. These are reminding him of his brother Esau. And he knows he's probably not going to measure up. Let's get rid of the competition. It's a pretty wise move. He wants some alone time with Rachel. So, hey, guys, got a great idea. Why don't you water your sheep? And you should go. And you should pasture them. And it doesn't go anywhere. They're like, no, you know, we're still waiting for a couple guys because we got to move this big rock and, and, and we're not ready to go do that. So he's going to have to deal with the competition, which may explain what he does next. Verse 9. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now, as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. What did he just do? He is flexing his muscles in front of Rachel. This normally took a few guys to move this stone. Okay, these guys don't leave. This is his shot. He, he needs to make a good first impression. Guys, you know how this works. First impressions are very important. Right? You, you, have to, you, you don't want it to get to the point where she actually finds out who you really are. Because that's probably not going to go well for you. right? So you've got to deceive her right out of the gate and make this impression that you're something or not. Right? We're joking, but this is what guys do. And guys will do silly things to make a really good first impression. And they'll just get goofy in front of girls. So this is what Jacob does. He comes up. I mean, adrenaline is pumping. A beautiful woman can get adrenaline pumping like nothing else in a man. And so he has this Hulk-like strength that comes out of nowhere, probably lets out this barbaric yawp, gets underneath the rock and just, just heaves the thing off. He hasn't said a word to Rachel. She just walks up and he seizes the moment. I've got to stand out here. I'll be the guy who moves this rock. I'm sure he pulled something. He's just he's got to make it appear that he didn't. But apparently Jacob's not a wimp, right? I mean, if you're like me, you thought he was apparently he's doing CrossFit in the kitchen because he's strong and he's able to pull this off. We don't we didn't expect him to do this. Now, some of you guys, you you know, you've done foolish things like this in front of the women you love. I can still remember doing this in college. Oh, I still do this kind of, but I, I'll share stories from a long time ago because it's embarrassing, but less embarrassing because it's more embarrassing than I still do it. I, I can remember in college, um, I, was, I was a runner for a period of time. I used to like to run, and I liked to run because Kristen liked to run. That's why I ran. Did not enjoy running, hated running, but I was happy to run with her. Once I saw she was running, I'm going to run. The other thing I would do, though, is I wanted her to know, this was back when I used to actually work out, believe it or not, and uh, I, I, I found out what, we worked out at the same gym, right? and I wanted to work out at the same gym that she was working out, and then I made sure that I worked out at the gym at the same time she was working out at the gym. A little bit of stalking going on there. <laughs> I'd go stand over by the parking lot of her dorm and wait for the red Honda Prelude to drive off. And then I'd run over to my car and hop in and, oh, here we go. Here you are. I'm working out too. And uh, so we would, we would, you know, we would do this. And I would, I would even go so far, I can remember this. And the whole point is, what am I trying to do? I'm trying to impress her. Right? I still do this. I'm trying to impress her. 
I wanted to see what I'm doing. I can remember I would even save certain exercises to do when she would arrive at the gym. There were some, if I was at the gym before she was, there was things that I would just get out of the way like squats because there's nothing impressive about seeing a guy do squats. So I would do that, and then when she would come, I would have certain exercises that I would do, though, in front of her, like hammer curls. Right? I'm going to work out my biceps. I'm going to wait till she shows up, and then, oh, you grab a hammer. That's what we call them. You grab a couple dumbbells, and you just go like this, and then the body kind of rocks side to side. I always thought it looked really cool in the mirror. It was, it was pretty impressive, right? Or shoulder shrugs. Right? I mean, that looks amazing, doesn't it? You're like, wow, <laughs> he is fit. You're just, are you just watching me. Your, your just mind is blown. So I would do this. I would do this in front of her, right? And I'm facing the mirror, and I'm watching her. And, you know, when she looks, you know, I speed up the reps or whatever it is. Because what am I doing? Just silly, foolish things. I want to impress her. Okay, so I understand when I read this, I totally understand what Jacob's doing when he walks up and he gets underneath the rock and he chucks it off of the well. Now, his behavior gets even weirder, though. What does he do next? Verse 11. Let me find it. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. I mean, hang on yourself first. He tries to get rid of the competition. That doesn't work. So then he shows off for her, and then he walks up, and he kisses her, and then he starts crying. <laughs> right? This is pretty strange behavior. But some of you have done things like this. Has he spoken a word to her yet? He has not spoken a word to her. But he has flexed his muscles, he has kissed her, and now he's crying. He's just losing it in front of her. This is not a good move, right? This is not going to win points. I don't know if he's trying to say, hey, listen, I'm strong, but I'm also really sensitive. (laughs) I'm I'm the ultimate guy here. I like to talk. And I'm emotional. And I know you have needs. And I I can connect with you. But I don't know what he's doing. But it's pretty odd behavior. Verse 12. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman, and that he was Rebekah's son, and she ran and told her father. Now, this is interesting. Right? This is kissing cousins we have here. It does not work this way in our day. Today, if you kiss someone that you are attracted to and then tell them you're their cousin... It's usually not cause for celebration. <laughs> they may run as she ran, but probably for very different reasons. But she's excited. She's very excited. She's very excited because in this day, if you, if you met someone that was a part of your distant family, it meant that you were most likely spiritually and relationally compatible. It was a good thing. It meant they probably loved the same God that you loved. probably meant that they served the same God that you served. probably meant that they had the same values that, that you had, the same uh, truth that you had. Remember, that's why Jacob is being sent to this family in the first place, to find a good and godly woman who loves the same God that you love. So she hears that he's from her family. She's excited, and she runs to tell her dad. Verse 13. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, 
his sister's son. He ran to meet him and embrace him and, and kissed him. Everyone's kissing in this story. And brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now remember who Laban is. Laban is the brother of Rebekah, Jacob's mom. A hundred years ago, Laban was around. And he was the brother who brokered, if you will, the marriage between Isaac and Rebekah. And now a hundred years later, Isaac's son Jacob is here. And he's going to basically broker the marriage between Jacob and now his daughter, Rachel. So he invites Jacob to live with him for a month. During this time, Jacob is working hard. Um, he's helping with the family ranch. And when Laban comes and asks him uh, how he would like to be compensated for his work, uh, Jacob is going to seize this opportunity to declare his intentions and his desire to Laban. So Jacob's life appears to be taking a turn for the better at this point. It wasn't just recently. Remember, he left home to run from his angry brother who wanted to kill him. And he sets off on this 550-mile journey to find a wife. Things are not good back home. And he's completely alone out in the middle of the desert. His life was not going well. But then something very special happened on the way here when his life, you could say, started to take a turn. He met God. He met God. God revealed himself to Jacob. God declared his, uh, his love and affection for Jacob and his commitment and devotion to Jacob. God enters into covenant with Jacob. God makes promises to Jacob. Uh, Jacob wakes up the next morning. Jacob celebrates, you remember. He celebrates this. He's been converted. He's been saved. He has this new relationship with God. And so he celebrates. He packs up and he, he continues on his journey where he's headed to, to find his wife. And he, when he first pulls into town, at the very first well he stops out, he, he meets this beautiful woman that appears to be his perfect match. He's been living with her family now for a month. He has established himself. He has established a reputation amongst this family. And now the father of this woman that he loves comes to him and asks him what he would like. So at this point, Jacob's life is a charmed life. And that's going to change. Dramatically. It's going to change dramatically. And so we need to talk briefly about sanctification. Sanctification and the difficult means God uses to grow us up. If Jacob were asked, would you like me to help you grow as a Christian through this providence? Jacob would have voted no. No. But God uses very difficult means to sanctify his people, to grow his people. So here's how this here's how this works. We become a Christian. Because remember, Jacob is a, he's a, he's a recent 
believer, recent convert, if you will. He's a new believer, and now he's going to begin this process of growing as a Christian. So here's how this works, right? There's, there's level one. When you first co- come to know Jesus, and it's going well. That's level one. It's going well. You remember that. It's that week after summer camp. Okay, it's those, those weeks or those months, maybe some of you for those years after your conversion where it is going well. Okay, your, your hope is, this new hope that you have is so fresh and this new faith that you, you have is, is, is so vibrant that even if bad things are happening to you, you don't really feel them like you do later in life. You remember those days? Just came to know Jesus. You're just on cloud nine. It seems like everything is going well. Some of you maybe even wondered if it was just going to last that way forever and there was never going to be difficulty again. There was never going to be hardship again. It was just going to be 24-7, just praise music going on in your heads and relationships working and overcoming sin and uh, church is going well. And you thought, this is just, this is my new life. And for some of you, that was a very short season. But it was going well. And then you got to level two when you learned that that there isn't some sort of hedge of protection that keeps bad things from happening to you. You learn that when you become a Christian, it doesn't mean that there's some sort of magical hedge of protection that keeps bad things from happening to you, that keeps the trouble out, that keeps the difficulty out, that keeps the suffering out. But on that level, you are still able to endure. Right? You are still able to endure the, that difficulty because of God. Because of God. So there was hard things in your life, but God was better and God was greater. So you were able to still have joy and you were able to remember who God was and who God is and what God had done and what God had promised to do. And so there was a suffering that was like a byproduct of the sinful world that you lived in. But you had God. And so you kept going. Well, there's another level. There's some of you got to. Some, some of you are gonna, you're going to reach this level right now. You learn something else. You learn somewhere along the line that God controls the bad things in your life. You learn that God controls the bad things in your life. That God's hand is behind the pain and the suffering and that God allows, ordains, brings pain and suffering into your life. And that was different. That was different. There may have been a season at first, if you didn't have good doctrine at first, or good theology at first, or deep theology at first. This is pretty common for most of us. There was a point where God, in your mind, was not connected in any way to the suffering or the trouble or the difficulty or the pain that was in your life. That is only a byproduct of the sinful world, and God is somehow disconnected from it. He, He doesn't have anything to do with it. His hand is not behind it, and He's there to encourage you and help you when it comes about. Maybe He's even surprised by it, but He just has absolutely nothing to do with it. And then you learned, or you're learning right now, that God actually has His hand behind even the difficult things in your life. So it's not just when good things happen and your life goes the way you want, that, oh, thank you, God, but that when bad things happen and don't go the way you want, God's hand is still behind them. 
And you thought it was God when it's good and Satan when it's bad. And then you learn that it's God when it's good and it's Satan when it's bad and it's God when it's bad. And that ultimately his hand is behind it like he allowed Satan to tempt and to torment Job. But God's hand was behind it. And then you learn that God controls these bad things into your life and introduces pain and suffering into your life. Because at that point you're wondering why. And then you learn, well, because he loves you. And that made no sense. You wanted to push the reset button. I must have heard that heard that wrong. We need, we need an update here. This doesn't make any sense. Because if you love me, you're going to make much of me. And if you really love me, you're going to give me everything I want. And a good God is not going to bring bad things into my life. I mean, this is, just, this is, how, this is how we think. But we heard, no, God controls the bad things in your life. God's hand is behind the bad things in your life. Jacob, the things that you're going to endure, God is behind this. God is orchestrating this. And it's because God loves you and your being. Here's the word sanctified. The word means changed. You're being grown. You're being matured. You're being sanctified. And suffering is a primary instrument for our sanctification. It is one of God's favorite brushes that he uses to paint our life. With good and glorious and loving purposes, God means to grow us through suffering. Let me rattle through a few verses. 2 Peter 3.18 But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Here in these verses that a living Christian is a growing Christian. Okay? There is no such thing as a Christian who is not growing. As a Christian who is being, not being sanctified. That does not exist. A Christian who is not growing is not a Christian. A Christian who is not maturing is not a Christian. A Christian who is not changed is not a Christian. Now let me assure some of you that at times that growth may be incremental and barely noticeable. A lot of you just gave a big sigh of relief in your heart because you're thinking, I am not seeing it. Well, there are times where you will not see it, but rest assured, growth is happening. But there's no such thing as a Christian who lives for 10 years and has no growth in their life, no maturity in their life, no deepening love for God in their life. That's one of the misnomers in Christian culture today. There will be evidence of faith. It's a big deal when the Holy Spirit comes and indwells you. That's a really big deal. And he's sort of noticeable. Like he knocks furniture around and makes messes and accomplishes amazing things. So the Holy Spirit does not dwell in a Christian and the Christian looks the same for 10 years. That is false. That is false. God sanctifies his people. Ephesians 4.15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ. First Peter 2, 2. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. First Corinthians 3, 6. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Psalm 1, 3. 
Blessed is the man who is like a tree planted by streams of water who yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. A living Christian is a growing Christian. You're like a tree, the Bible says. And you're going to grow. And you're going to bear fruit. Now here's the truth now in regards to that growth. You and I do not grow apart from difficulty. We do not grow apart from difficulty. You don't become joyful by getting everything you want. See, we think, no, I'm going to grow and I'm going to mature if life is smooth. Because then I've got all the time to work on maturing. And this is not how it works. We think that I'll be joyful and I'll be happy and I'll be content if I just have, and it's always this one other thing. And the truth is you could have all the riches of the world and it's still not enough. There's still not contentment. There's still not joy. You and I as Christians, we do not mature apart from suffering. It's hard to hear, isn't it? I'll tell you what, that's hard to hear when you're not suffering and it's sweet to hear when you're suffering. Because when you hear that and you're not suffering, it's, uh uh-oh, that means, right? You're saying that means I'm going to suffer. And it does mean that. Yeah, it means you're going to suffer. Now, if you're in suffering, though, and that's already happened, and you're in the middle of it, and you hear that God matures you through suffering, that's encouraging, isn't it? This isn't wasted suffering. This isn't for nothing. This is for God's glory, most importantly. Most personally, it's for your good. It's for your good. God is up to something good. God is up to something sweet. The good comes through the difficult. Even the world is picked up on this by saying things like, what doesn't kill me makes me stronger. Even the world sees that good things come from bad things. But what the world fails to do is to connect it to God and his work in us. And those are the gaps that scripture now comes and fills. It's true. It makes you stronger. It makes you stronger in the Lord. God is growing us and God is maturing us. Everyone suffers. Everyone suffers. Everyone. Some people suffer obviously and some people suffer obscurely. But everyone suffers. To some it's just very clear and obvious and it's evident and it seems extreme and, and, and everyone around knows. And for others, it's, it's within, isn't it? It's internal. It's, uh, it's quiet tears. But it's still suffering. And there is no exception. No one, including Christians, lives a charmed life. No one lives a charmed life. There is no magical hedge of protection that keeps bad things from happening. There is no magical hedge of protection that keeps suffering away. But here's the deal for a Christian. There is magical suffering. The Christian life is not a a charmed life where there is no suffering. The Christian life is a life of charmed suffering. There is suffering in the Christian's life, but it does magical, miraculous, unexplainable things in the life of a Christian. A Christian suffers and is more thankful at the end of it. A Christian suffers and loves God more 
because of it. A Christian suffers and is closer to God because of it. A Christian suffers and loves others more because of it. A Christian suffers and has things taken away and is more content in the things they have because of it. This is magical suffering. And the Christian life is not a life where suffering is removed. It's a life where the suffering is used. And the suffering is leveraged to bend us and to mold us and to get us to a place where actually there's more faith and there's more peace and there's more contentment and there's more joy. But a relationship with God is, is, is a life where you are sure to have still a lot of difficulty and a lot of suffering. You remember that line in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? It is a great quote about God. A great quote. When Susan and Lucy, they're learning about Aslan the lion, who represents Jesus Christ in these stories, right? And they're learning about the lion. And when they hear that this king is a lion, they're a little worried. Because they thought he was going to be like a unicorn or a koala bear or something like that. And that sounded better. When they learned a lion, remember what Susan said and Lucy said? Is he safe? And there's this great response by Mr. Beaver. (laughs) Mr. Beaver said, of course he's not safe. But he's good. God is not safe. God is dangerous. And being with God doesn't mean you get out of suffering and you get out of pain and you get out of trouble and you get out of fights and you get out of war and you get out of difficulty and you get out of blood and you get out of tears and you get out of scars. God is not safe, but God is good. He makes all those things magical and works miracles in your life, works supernaturally through the trouble, the difficulty, and the suffering in your life. So now here's God sanctifying Jacob. In verse 18, he's going to declare his intentions, but first the author wants us to know uh, a couple things. Here's a couple of those landmines that we're going to just step right on. Verse 16 and 17. Um, Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. So Laban, like Isaac, had two sons. Laban has two daughters, older, younger son, older, younger daughter. Here's the younger son wanting to marry the younger daughter. And we hear that Jacob found Rachel Very attractive. And he found Rachel very attractive because she was beautiful. And Moses, the author, wants us to know that her sister was not beautiful. Her sister was ugly. In fact, Leah means cow. It's okay, that's kind of shocking, right? Like, how could you name your daughter cow? Or something, cow eyes. Wow. Her eyes. They look like cows. There's big and bulging, enormous pupils, and just, it's kind of frightening to look at this girl. Let's name her Leah. 
Rachel, they named you. She's like a pretty little lamb. Leah, not so much. There was something off-putting. There was something off-putting about her, her eyes. I don't know if she had goat pupils or what. We had goats for a while. Have you ever seen goats? They've got like these rectangular-shaped pupils. This is freak you out when you see them. Maybe she had goat pupils. We don't know. But there was something about her eyes that just made you not want to look at the gal. And this was Leah. Now, let me say this. Moses is not making fun of Leah. He's just giving you the facts here. He wants us, this is important, he wants us to understand, because there's going to be a favoritism that Jacob is going to show here. There's going to be a preference that he's going to show here. And it's for Rachel, and it's not her personality. She's just beautiful. She physically has it together. She is very attractive to Jacob. And Leah was ugly. She was really, really ugly. And that's no big deal. That's no big deal. Some people are pretty and some people are ugly. Some people are handsome and some people are not handsome. And we don't need to shout it from the rooftops. We don't need to sweep it under the carpet. The reason it's such a big deal is because in our culture, physical beauty is worshipped. Physical beauty is worshipped. We pay very little attention to what's within. We pay very little attention to the the caring of a soul, but we'll care for a body like there's no tomorrow. Much of the focus is external, not internal in our culture. If you are physically attractive in our culture, you are favored. Your life may even go better. It may go better for you because of physical beauty that you have. In fact, some would go so far as to say, and we certainly act like those who are physically appealing and physically attractive are superior to those who are not. So in a culture like that, when you start talking about the realities of what is or isn't physically, it sounds super offensive. But it's not. Moses wants to make the point. Make no bones about it. Leah was not pretty. And she was, we'll say things like, well, she's pretty in her own way. No, she wasn't pretty in her own way either. She just wasn't pretty. And that's okay. That's okay. Because physical beauty isn't everything. But here's the deal. It's something. See, we can go to two extremes here. It may not be everything, and that's important to understand, but it is something. It's from God. And it shouldn't be ignored. It's from God. And it shouldn't be ignored. The way we work through this is that we all have to come to grips with the fact that there are some things we are and there are some things that we are not. Stop trying to be something that you aren't. There are some things we are. There are some things we're not. We mustn't, in our mind, elevate those things which we are not. Accept what God has done in you and through you. Accept who you are in Christ and be content with that. That's the problem. That's the problem. Not pretending that everybody looks the same. That's not the remedy. It's to be content and to know that there is much more to beauty than what is seen on the outside, but then at the same time to not disregard outward beauty. It needs to be it needs to be balanced. So here we go. Jacob's straightforward. He's up front. 
Time to declare intentions. Dad comes to him and says, hey, you've really established yourself. You've been working hard. You've got a good reputation. And I just realized I haven't given you anything. You've just been working for free. How would you like to be compensated? So here's his moment to declare his intentions. We read now in verse 18. Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. One of the greatest love stories in the Bible is the love story between Jacob and Rachel. And what we're going to have in the verses that follow is a picture of love. A real picture of love. So what's going on here? Why does Jacob say, hey, I work for you seven years. And at the end of that seven years, I can have your daughter as my wife. That's that's what I would like. Well, in this day. If you wanted to marry a girl, you had to pay the bride price. You had to pay a bride price, which was pretty hefty. Okay, in modern numbers, it could be anywhere between twenty five and fifty thousand dollars. What that means is that if you wanted to marry a girl, you had to give her family a bunch of money. And you had to give her family a bunch of money, not because she's some kind of commodity. You had to give her family a bunch of money to prove that you could provide for their daughter. I'm stable. I'm a hard worker. I can I can do this. I have done this. And if that was able to be proven and a bride price was paid, then maybe the dad would consider allowing you to marry his daughter. But here's the thing that's very different from our culture today. You don't get the girl then. You wouldn't get the girl based on your intentions to work hard. It didn't go like this. Hey, can I marry your daughter? And then dad would say, well, tell me about yourself. You know, what's your bank account look like? What's the job situation? Well, I don't have a job, but I promise to get a job. Right? And guys are good at this. We can talk, and it's all these intentions. I will work hard, sir. You have my word. I will work hard to provide for your daughter. No matter what I need to do, I'll work three jobs if I have to. I'm going to finish up school. I'll get a job. If it's not enough, I'll get another job. I will do whatever it takes to marry your daughter. And today, intentions are given out when a man wants to marry a girl. And the assumption is that the commitment can then happen based on the intentions. But that's not how it would work in this day. What the father would say is, that sounds like a really good plan, minus my daughter. And you should go and work that plan. And when you're providing for yourself and you have the money and you have the provision and you're responsible, then come back and we can talk. But I'm not giving you my daughter based on your good intentions. I really think that's wise. That is really good. It wasn't based on intentions. Does Jacob get Rachel before the seven years or after the seven years? He gets Rachel after seven years years of hard work. If she's picking you up because you can't both ride on your scooter and and the dinner bill is being split, then he doesn't get to marry the daughter. This is how that works. He has to go and get a job and provide. 
It's, when we hear things like this, we think it sounds terrible because we're so into just the sentiment and the feeling side of love. When what we're seeing here is a man who really loves a girl. We're not talking about his feelings. There are feelings that spur on action and what he actually does to love Rachel. No job, no money, no wife. That's how it worked. No job, no money, no wife. The woman is incentive. And the marriage is reward. Reward. When you get the reward. At the end, the marriage is not incentive. Oh, here, here, have her, take her, she's your wife, and now may that be incentive for you to work hard. No, she'll be the reward if you work hard. And for now, she's just your sister, she's just your cousin, and, and may that be incentive for you to do what you need to do and then to come back and have her. So that's what he's talking about. Jacob thinks Rachel is very valuable, and so he makes this deal and says, I'll work seven years for that girl. Seven years he will work for her. Verse 19 and 20. Verse 20, most ladies would agree, one of the most romantic verses in the entire Bible. Verse 19 first. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. Here it is. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel. And they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Oh. Oh, right? That's good. I mean, even I think that's, that's awesome, right? Seven years of hard work. Seven years. And for Jacob, it was like a few days. Now, here's what, we, here's what we're reading here. His work went by fast. Every man wants that. Every man wants that. His work went by fast. There is no complaints from Jacob. There is no complaints about his work. Married men who are here. Do the work days seem to drag on for you at times? Do you know what the biblical remedy is? Think about your wife. Think about your wife. Think about that precious woman that God has given you and that will make the time go by fast. Why did the time go by fast for Jacob? Because of his love for Rachel. Now men can do this. Men are typically not the greatest multitaskers, but every man can think about at least two things. The work that's in front of him and a woman. No problems there. I cannot multitask. I, I cannot multitask. My wife can multitask. She's doing things with her eyes, her ears, her mouth, her hands, her feet, all going in different directions, doing a bunch of different tasks at once, having a conversation with me, paying attention to what's going on over here. Knows, just, it is really amazing. I can't do that. I have to write everything down. I have to write everything down. If I don't write it down, I have very small RAM in my head, and one thing comes and boop, it drops off into an abyss. I never see it again. We'll totally forget the conversation, everything. It just completely disappears because I cannot multitask. But every man can do at least two things at once. Men, you know this. You can do whatever's in front of you and you can think about a woman. Men use this for good and for evil, by the way. But every man can do this. He can do the work that's in front of him and he can think about a woman. What is Jacob thinking about for seven years? Rachel. He's thinking about Rachel. 
there's a few simple applications that we can draw from this. Number one, many women underestimate their value and give themselves away too quickly and too easily. Oh, who's going to love me? Who's going to marry me? Who's going to provide for me? I should have been married a long time ago. It's too late. And what do gals do? Well, sometimes gals will settle. And the reason they're settling is because they're underestimating their value and underestimating their worth. So if you've got any young single gals or older single gals here, understand this truth. You're worth seven years. You are worth seven years and then some of hard work. Jacob understood that. I'll work seven years, he said. Number two, a challenge for us men, an application for us men. Men, work hard and enjoy your work. We say this a lot. Work hard, that's number one, and enjoy your work, that's number two. How do I enjoy my work? That is impossible. Well, here's two ways you enjoy your work. The number one way we enjoy our work is we remember that work is good for you. Work is good for you. Okay, God has made you to work and you're supposed to work. And when you're not working, that's why you're miserable because you're not working. Work is good. So work. And then number two, your work, married men, your work provides for your family. That's a really big deal. That is a huge deal. And if a man doesn't do that, First Timothy 5, 8, he's worse than a non-believer. Providing for your family is a good thing. You work hard and you enjoy your work, we see here, because your work is, if nothing else, it is a means to an end. It is providing for a family. When we speak of being fulfilled in our jobs and fulfilled in our work and fulfilled in our careers, this is where the fulfillment should come from. The fulfillment isn't necessarily going to be that you just, the, the work that you do is just inherently joyous to you. I just love what I do. That is probably not going to happen. The fulfillment is not found in the work itself, but is found in what the work provides. What it provides. In this case, providing for Jacob's wife. Why? Why did Jacob's work go by so fast? Why were there no complaints? Why? Does it tell us because he was... Fulfilled in his job. It does not say that. That's how we talk. That's not how this talks. Seven years of work, and it seemed like only a few days because Jacob finally found a career where his passions and his abilities and his giftedness intersected. That's what we're looking for. But that is not where he found his fulfillment. That is not why it went fast. The pleasure in his work came because of who he was thinking about. He was thinking about his wife. So, men, if you're married and you have families and your work just seems to drag on, you need to think about your wife more. You need to think about her. Just picture. Get pictures up of her. Have it on your phone. Call her. Text her throughout the day. You need to remember. You need to remember her. From that should come the incentive, the motivation to work hard. And then the third application and final from that portion, be patient. Seven years. That almost sounds laughable to us today. Guys hold out and are pure with their girlfriends for a year and think they're the next Jesus Christ. <laughs> Seven years. 
Seven years. Can you imagine how difficult those seven years were? They were young and in love. Can you imagine how difficult, how patient they needed to be for seven years? He did not grab her and run off to Vegas. (laughs) He did not sleep with her. They did not show one another previews of coming attractions. They did not slander crazy Laban. They did not say who cares what other people say. They did not say we're married in our hearts. (laughs) Whatever that means. Nothing like that. Nothing like that. What did it look like for seven years? He worked and she waited. He worked and she waited. He loves her. He loves her. And we're not talking about feelings. He loves her. He is giving himself up for her. He loves her. James Boyce said, Can it be that seven years seemed like only a few days to Jacob because his was true love, while days seem like years to many of our contemporaries because they do not know the meaning of a real and deep affection? Verse 21 now. He's worked for seven years. Verse 21. Then, after these seven years of work, Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her for my time is completed. That sounds like an awkward conversation. (laughs) Holy cow. I mean, he is being really straightforward here. Really straightforward. I don't want to play board games. I don't want to talk. I don't want to go for a walk on the beach. He is very clear about What he would like to do. (laughs) Wow. To her father. (laughs) But listen, is is this before the seven years or after the seven years? Is this before the engagement, during the engagement? No. He has been godly and he has been faithful and he is ready to enjoy the fruits of marriage. It's go time for Jacob. Verse 22. (laughs) So Laban agrees. Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. Oh, we just don't believe what happens next. Sanctification. My goodness. Verse 23. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob and he went into her. So he consummates his marriage with whom he thinks is Rachel, but it's actually her sister, Leah. I don't know how this is possible. I don't know. It was possible there was a party, it was a feast. Maybe Jacob drank too much. This was obviously before artificial light. When it's dark, it's really dark. But she think, he thinks that he's, he's going to bed with Rachel. In fact, he, he goes to bed with Leah. Verse 25, and in the morning, behold, it was Leah. Oh, no. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Now, here's the great line. 
why then have you deceived me? You getting it? What does Jacob's name mean? Deceiver. Hey, what had he just pulled off over dad back home? He pretended to be the older brother. Deception. And here he is thinking he's going to bed with the younger sister. And who does he go to bed with? The older sister. This family's version of Esau. What just happened? The deceiver has been deceived. Friends, this is sanctification. Here's the, what, the Bible speaks of it like this. We reap what we sow. We reap what we sow. Again, the world says things like what goes around comes around. But God has built this into his universe. And that is that what you reap, what you sow, you're going to reap. You sow sin, you're going to reap sin. You sow deception, you're going to reap deception. You deceive people and lie to people, people are going to deceive you and they're going to lie to you. You steal from people, people are going to steal from you. You dishonor God, you're going to be dishonored. We reap what we sow. And Jacob has just been deceived by his crafty mother's craftier brother. He just one-upped mom. That was nothing compared to what Jacob finds himself in now. Verse 26. Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. That would have been something Jacob would have liked to have known seven years ago. (laughs) That is awkward timing. And not an excuse. Verse 27. Complete the week of this one and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. How many years is that? Fourteen years. Right? And I know six months for us seems like a really long time. Fourteen years. Is Rachel worth it? She's worth it. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. Now, who's in control of all of this? God is in control of all of this. What is God doing? God is sanctifying Jacob. New believing Jacob. God is maturing him. God is growing him. God will be successful We'll see the kind of man Jacob becomes. It is God's work in him. And what is the instrument that God uses to sanctify Jacob? Suffering. Painful providences. Difficulty. Verse 31. Do you see how God sanctifies Leah as well? When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, that most likely doesn't mean what our mind conjures up when we hear the word hated. Actually, as the story goes on, it will appear that Jacob indeed loved Leah as well, was good to her, cared for her, provided for her, never spoke ill of her. But he preferred Rachel. He preferred Rachel. 
And let us not forget that Leah was involved in the deception. She deceived him. But the Lord's compassionate, and he saw that Leah was hated. He opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. So he gives Leah kids, but he doesn't give Rachel kids. And this is sad. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. Isn't that sad? Now my husband will love me. Maybe if I give him a son, maybe then the tables will turn. Maybe his primary affection will be for me. But watch, God is sanctifying her too. Verse 33, she conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. You see the idol in Leah's life. The affection of her husband. That's what she's holding out for. But it would appear to me that God is working in her heart because baby four gets a different name. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. Now, friends, do you know who these children are that are coming from this wild situation in this crazy family? These are the children of Israel. These are the future tribes of Israel. God is in control. God is at work. God is using difficult means to bring about the best in his world and in his people. Close with a quote from Derek Kidner who says, The story reveals that God, not Laban, had the last word. The deceiver was deceived and the despised Leah was exalted to become the mother of, among others, the priestly and kingly tribes of Levi and Judah. Let's pray. Oh, great Father in heaven, thank you for giving us your word and giving it to us in a way that we can understand, giving it to us in a way that is, is good for us and helpful for us. God, we pray that even after we hear your word preached, that your spirit would be at work and active in our heart and in our souls and that you would sanctify us and that you would change us. God, we know that there are many lessons that we must learn by experience, but we pray that we would be a faithful people who don't have to sin to learn how wicked it is. That we would read stories like we've read today and we would learn from those who have gone before us that the way to live is, is to please you. The way to live is to pursue holiness. The way to live is to lean not on our own understanding, but to acknowledge you. Help us in this, God, to do well for your glory and for our good. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.